Another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good, Jody. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Was I <laughs> smacking my lips already? No, I'm just making a reference to what we might be talking about in today's episode. Ooh, I see. I see. Yes, we are talking about preparing our tracks for mixing. Yes, sir. So, so whether we're doing this ourselves or we're sending them off to somebody else to mix, these are good things to do. And this is something that you've always been a big proponent of yeah. for a fair bit of kind of doing this and mixing in a different template, that kind of thing, right? Well, I've so, not always been a proponent of it. I am a proponent no, of but, it now. Yes, but I would say probably for at least Five years, maybe? Longer than well, this? I think it's longer than that. See? I mean, that's a lifetime of, of doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess once you get past the five-year mark, it's a lifetime. Yeah, I guess. So what are we talking about when we're doing this? Well, we're going to go through in detail here a little bit what we're doing. Both you and I are proponents of not necessarily mixing in the same project as we've done the writing or the recording. The same DAW file for those that don't know what he means, because not every not every DAW calls it a project. Hmm, I'm trying to think of <laughs> an exception to that, but I can't. But either, okay, so fair enough. But yeah, so let's say the same project file or the same DAW that you're tracking in, you've done all your writing, you've recorded everything in one window. The things that we're about to talk about here, they will work even if you don't have the habit of starting up another song file or a project for the mixing duties. But these are good habits to have before you get going because I know I can speak from experience that early on when you find issues as you're doing your mixing and you're compressing your vocal or whatever, and it's like, what the hell is that? So, <laughs> Flying cars? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to try to alleviate this. But the first thing I would say, if you're opening up another song file, what are the benefits to you by doing that? By opening up a separate project file? Yeah, for the mixing, going from one to the next. Why would you not just mix in the same project file? Mindset. Yeah. Mindset is the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing is temptation. Because yeah. having the song file that you've done all of your writing and tracking in as your mixing file as well leads to, as a biblical reference, Eve tempting Adam with the apple. Okay. Just kind of holding it, shaking it in front of your face like, hey, I could change this sound at any given moment right now. And that just leads to problems down the road, in my mind. Okay. I'm going to bypass the whole religious angle because sure. I'm not there with you. I'm not there either, <laughs> but, but, but I'm just trying yeah, to give an no, example. Yes, that is true. It's very easy to like go, oh, oh, you know what? Maybe I should change the synth sound because I can, or maybe I should do this. Or Yes, it can have the benefit, I agree, with defining your tasks. Now I'm doing this uh -huh. and get a little bit more of a different perspective of the song, I suppose. See, you've so, simplified what I was attempting to say. I think that's the first on the podcast because <laughs> uh, it's usually the other way around. Another benefit of, of doing it like this, and even if you don't move to a different project file, is it makes your archiving and backing up a lot easier. 
Yes. And that will make more sense when we get to talk into specifics here in the next half hour or so. Well, you're saying having a singular file makes it easy, right? No, not necessarily. I mean, I can go both ways because I know that today there's the workflow isn't necessarily as defined. Mm. So I know that there is a temptation of just, okay, everything is tracked. I'm good to go and start mixing here. And there's not necessarily anything super inherently wrong with that. Nope. But the tasks that we're about to perform and talk about would be valid even if you stay in the same project file or not. But I'm with you on the mindset. And that sounds really, really like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Here, but <laughs> it's more the separation of the mindset, I think. But it's mm -hmm. also obviously if you're staying in the same project file, I'm assuming that you're going to do the mixing yourself as you've done the tracking, you're not going to outsource it. It's quite possible, but yeah. some mixing engineers will say, hey, send me the Pro Tools file or send me the yeah. logic file or send me insert DAW file. Right. But even if I'm going to do that, mm -hmm. because I'm anal retentive, possibly, <laughs> is that I will <laughs> still, say. well, I know, um, <laughs> but I would still do cleanups on that file before I send it over to them. Of course. Because, because it's the size of the file or anything, but there might be erroneous audio tracks and stuff that are not going to be used. I'd like to get rid of them just so that they can see exactly what's going on. Uh -huh. But the tasks that we're talking about here are, on the surface, I think they're kind of obvious. Right? But One would hope. One would hope. And if not, they should be obvious after you listen to this episode, I think. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully they'll help out the workflow. And I know it certainly did for me. The big thing that I'm thinking about first is obviously things like comping tracks. If you have like multiple choices, whether it's whatever the instrument is, if it's vocals or guitars or whatever, mm -hmm. do all the comping and have one track instead of all these little tracks. Of, in the verse, I'm going to... Take number eight, and uh, then I'm going to have take number two on the other one, right? Well, do all that comping so that you just have one continuous track or multiples, but comp the tracks. And that's an obvious one that I don't think that needs to be said, but I just said it, damn it. So, <laughs> I can stand by that. Comp yeah, those takes, yeah. Exactly. And the Unless other you don't would, trust yourself to comp your own takes. Yeah, but I think then that's a different issue then you need to outsource that. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you're sending it to somebody to mix, let's say, and you're asking that person to comp the tracks for you, you can be harsh and say, well, that's not really that person's job. So how, what kind of emotion are you going across? It's one thing to ask for opinions, right? Sure. Say, well, what do you think when I went up with the vocal here or when I stayed flat, whatever. But make those decisions before. Mm -hmm. You even decide on mixing. If you can't decide on the tracks, how are you going to start mixing? Other thing is track organization. That's a big thing just straight off the bat. Right. So do you have an order how you like to have them laid out? I do. What's that? In terms of a DAW that's set up in its arrangement window, vertically mm -hmm. speaking, right. the very top will be the drum tracks. The next yeah. tracks after that will be the bass tracks or track depending on how you track it. Following the bass tracks going down the screen, mm -hmm. so to speak, guitar tracks. And then huh. past the guitar tracks are any kind of stringed tracks, whether it's mandolin or ukulele or some other stringed instrument. From there, it goes to synth tracks. 
or mm -hmm. any kind of electronic track or soft synth track. Below that would be if there's any orchestral stuff, then I would start grouping the orchestral section after that. And at the very bottom, and not to say that it's the very least, it is the vocal tracks. And I will do lead on top, backing tracks all the way down to the bottom. We've been working together for far too long. Because <laughs> that, that, that's the exact same order that I do stuff in as well. Yes. Uh, and then to top it off, it's not just the organizational of doing that. It's also the coloration of the tracks. I will group sections of instruments to the same color of color. That just sounded really silly, but that's what I mean. In that all the drums will be some sort of yellow. All the bass mm -hmm. is some sort of browns. All the guitars are some sort of blue. All the synths and stuff like that are some sort of green. Orchestral tracks will be some sort of purple. And my vocal tracks will be red. Yeah. That's an easy overlooked thing. I think it just helps your workflow because once you get a bunch of tracks lined up, it's not unusual to deal with up to 100 tracks. On, or more. On a session these days, right? Yeah, or more. That gives you that overview. So when you're scrolling, you know, okay, here's my red tracks. That's my vocal. That's where I'm at in the arrangement. And uh -huh. um, that's a big one. And I know I've played around with this in the past and tried to group things. And I'm very similar to where you are as well with, with the color coding. Sometimes I get bored and look at stuff, but then I get thrown <laughs> off if I change it. So that's the basic organization. And now, of course, if you're doing that and you're sending it to somebody else, never mind you doing the work yourself, it gives them the overview as well. Yes, um, where especially like, if oh. you're sending it from the same DAW. Like if you're yeah. – tracked everything in Pro Tools and your mixing engineer, or you are the mixing engineer, getting everything in Pro Tools, or say it's Logic Pro or some other DAW like Cubase or Digital Performer or Ableton's Live or Studio One, or even Luna for that matter. Having everything grouped visually speaking when you get it just makes it so obvious as to, here's my group of this, so that the mixing engineer can rearrange it. And if you are the mixing engineer getting this, it makes it easier for you to rearrange it if you need to rearrange it according to your whims. Absolutely. And that's the first thing that I tend to do, a little bit off topic, but if I'm receiving tracks from somebody, I want to make sure that I know what I have and then I organize it in the way that I like to have it so that I can see it. And you know uh, what else that we're kind of glossing over right now? What's that? Naming each track appropriately. So within oh, yes. my drum group, I have two kick tracks usually, the kick inside, the kick outside, possibly mm. a kick sub. I will have snare top and snare bottom. Maybe there's multiple mics on the top and bottom. So there's going to be additional snares. And they're all going to be labeled appropriately. Same thing with hi-hat. Hi-hat's going to get labeled as a hi-hat track. Then I've got overheads and whether or not it's mono or stereo. And then there might possibly be multiple Tom tracks as well for the individual Tom hits. They will all get labeled appropriately. So I know what piece of kit in the drum kit it is. Yeah. Label that shit so that you don't yeah. get lost. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a giant 
thing, right? Because, you know, we all joke about that, but you get a session from somebody and they're all called audio one, audio two, audio three. And all now the way you have to, to listen audio to- 150, take 45. And you're like, what right. the hell am I looking at? Yeah, exactly. So be kind, not just to yourself, but if you're sending it to somebody else, please make sure that you label your track or they will not want to work with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I won't work with you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what the basic general organization that I will do. So the naming, the, the organization, the color coding, and, and all that type of stuff. Let's get into a little bit I'm more I'm going to interject again before yeah. you go anywhere. Sure. I'm going to interject another thing, and that is if you're not staying in the same file and you go to mm-hmm. export all your tracks, the naming convention becomes highly important when you export your multi-tracks. Oh, sure. It makes it so much easier for your mix engineer to pull it into whatever DAW they're working on and automatically everything's labeled. Now, saying that, I will actually label by group. So I won't just say kick drum in, kick drum out, kick drum sub. I will actually insert a custom tag in front of it that says drum, drum, kick drum in, drum, kick drum out kind of thing. Drum, snare, drum, hi-hat, drum, so that all of them are grouped under drums. And that Mm. makes it easy. Same thing with guitars. Every guitar track will have the tag guitar in front of the name so that they all group together when it gets imported into the mix engineer's DAW. Mm, Yeah, I don't do that, but I see that because then it's the files are organized in their finder or their yes. explorer if you're on a PC, right? Very much so. so. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're going to get into some bigger specifics other than just general organization. And what are some of our specifics? Start us off, Chris. Well, let's start with vocals. Oh, yeah. We've already dealt with the comping, obviously, but this is also before we start mixing, I will do any kind of tuning if necessary to make sure that I have a vocal that is as pristine and as good of a performance as it can be. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Another thing that I do at this stage as well, because this is something that can kind of sneak up on you and kind of like I hinted at at the beginning of the podcast, removing any kind of noise in between lines of the vocal. (laughs) So let's say that there's the vocalist has done the verses separately and the choruses on another track, for example. Make sure that there's no throat clearing, any <coughs> room noise. <laughs> exactly, just like that, in between the takes. Because you might not hear them when you're just listening to the raw file, but when you are adding a little bit of compression and stuff, you're sitting there and you're trying to find that, what the f- is that noise in the mix, right? Where is that? And it's the singer going like <clears throat> in between the takes like or something. So get rid of all of that kind of stuff and pay special attention to right before and right after where the vocal line is mm-hmm. or any kind of room noise that could be leakage from headphones, that kind of stuff. Get rid of all that stuff in between and yeah, you'll thank me later. <laughs> <laughs> or you thank yourself for that matter. Indeed, yeah. And because that's just a frustrating thing where you find yourself, you're in this creative mode and you're, you're mixing and you're hyper-focused on what's going on in the soundscape of your mix. And then you start noticing noises and things. Now you have to go into like 
scientific corrective mode and it's just well yeah, it also depends on the kind of node some types of noise can just be general mouth clicks like your tongue is just moving through the mouth kind of thing sure yeah other things can be breaths and depending on how you're doing the, or dealing with breaths it could be something you're going to accentuate or something you're going mm. to decentuate yeah. Some people will probably remove them altogether, and that's not necessarily something I like to do unless it's really, really distracting. It has pretty much the opposite effect. It's almost like, what is that black paint that NASA came up with that's so black that it can't get none more black? Right. <laughs> Vanna black or Vanna something? Yeah, it's the blackest color ever. Right? It's yeah. almost like looking at a shadow that has no dimension. So mm. removing every breath can be the exact same functionality on a vocal. It can remove all the life out of the actual vocal. And some vocalists, such as, say, Steve Perry, they actually made an effort to accentuate where he was breathing. So mm. it would come way up. And some vocalists that are inspired by Steve, also do the same sort of thing. So when they compress and they bring that up, they're really bringing the breath out because it becomes part of the actual performance. And that becomes a conversation that you have between mix engineer and vocalist to make sure that you're getting what you want or what they want in your mix. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. To me, this is very dependent on style as well. Mm -hmm. But let's say that you, if you're working on a ballad, for example, mm -hmm. I think it would be very detrimental to remove all the breaths because it is that emotional aspect of the vocal take. And you want to hear that it's actually, it's a not human? a machine doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a machine doing it. It's, this is a human being singing. In cases, if it's, they're too prominent, the breaths. Mm -hmm. One thing I will do is I will change the gain of those. I'll just pull them down a little bit. And I will yeah. do this destructively as opposed to removing them altogether. But that is a very, very good point. I think we have to be a bit selective when we remove them. If it's a busier vocal and it's the singer has to take a quick breath in between two lines, that might be a case where I remove them. But that would also be dependent on the type of mix. If it's a more dense mix, I'm probably going to be more aggressive with the breaths mm. of the removal. But the more naked it is, the more natural, so to speak, I would leave a lot of the breaths alone. And then if they pop out too much, just do an automation ride on them or something. And now you know why when you're driving in your car and you're trying to sing along and you can't keep up with the same amount of breath, it's because Chris has removed the breaths. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Wow, this singer didn't breathe through the whole thing. This is amazing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So we have to be careful there. But that process, again, is part of this for me. Mm -hmm. kind of, you, you know, you tune the vocal. Well, you've comped your vocal. You've tuned them and gotten rid of any kind of noise. And Possibly probably, even time corrected. Yes. That's a big one, too. And if you're, especially if you're going for some you know, pure a, a, pop bliss. Yeah, but you got like multi-stacked like BVs and things. Uh -huh. I'll make sure that they're nice and tight because uh, nothing 
can get more frustrating in a mix where, where you're losing that impact. But now we're going into a little bit more vocal tracking and things. But what's coming next? Let's just boot it right over. What's the next instrument? I'm thinking now in groups of like bass and or guitar. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing here for me is if I am using amp sims, mm-hmm. if I want to print the amp sim at this time, that's usually a yes. But I always keep the DI there if something is not working in the mix. If somebody is sending me tracks to mix, I would ask them to do the same. Print a track with the sound that you have in mind and that you're kind of working with. But please give me the DI so that if something really isn't working and the guitar is too fuzzed out or whatever, I can make adjustments there. I think what you're Um, also intending to say is that you're not actually using the DI track in the actual mix. You just want for the option to change tonality. Correct. But I actually have done both. But yeah, (laughs) yeah, a little bit of clarity in there. But yes, generally... 999 times out of 1,000, I'm not using the DI uh-huh. blended in there. But but you could obviously do it if you need to. Here again, just as with vocals, removing you know, noise in between lines or parts. And this is usually little string noise where the fingers are flickering on top of the strings or whatever. I would get rid of those. We've talked about before, if there's excessive like string noise, this might be a case for like RX or uh-huh. something to to fix that kind of thing. Also for amp hum. Oh yeah, there's a lot of that. You can do that either with RX or make sure your gate is set properly (laughs) if you need to use that. (laughs) Very much the same, just kind of like a cleanup type of thing. But a good thing to have there is to have that DI to be able to go back to if something needs to be fixed. Right. Now drums, let's say that we're dealing with an acoustic kit that is mic'd up Uh for recorded drums, what do you tend to do there? First thing I'm going to listen for is any phasing between the individual recorded tracks. Yeah. Yes, phasing can be a real issue, especially between the stereo overheads. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that hopefully you don't have any of that stuff. And if you do, if there's hopefully a way to correct that stuff by moving it by whatever sample forward or back on the particular track that you're trying to move and get the phasing removed from the situation. Right, and the face reversal if it would be needed Yes, to, right, also. Well. Yeah. That would be interesting to have like the left and right mics be out of phase. On that note though, mm-hmm. when you're going through this process, because I know what I tend to do, but I want to hear what you do. Uh-huh. Where do you have your reference, if you will? Do you start with like the overheads and then go by that? Or do you start from like, when it comes to phase here, I'm talking. Do you reference like your kick and your snare to the overheads or do you do it the other way around? I would reference to the overheads. Yeah. Because that's where you're going to get a lot of your spatial reality outside of your room mic if you've got room mic or mics going on. A lot of your room soundy sound would probably be coming from your overheads. And setting that to the phasing. Now, that makes it also slightly difficult, especially if you're comping takes of drums. Yeah. You have to be very, very careful about how you go about that because multiple takes could have different types of phasing going on, and then that becomes a real nightmare to fix in the mixing process. So you hope that your tracking engineer is an absolute drum recording stud or stud at 
Yeah. The biggest thing I would see that though when it comes to phasing would be like if something is changed in between takes, which is mm -hmm. a big no-no. Yeah, right? but it can happen. It can happen. Yeah, you knock the mic a little bit on the snare or whatever. And so that that's something that you want to avoid, obviously. I'm with you there when you correct for phasing and time alignment and all that kind of stuff that I know both you and I tend to do, even if it's just... 150 milliseconds or whatever. To me, again, it appeals to my anal, <laughs> anal retentive yes, nature, anal, anal. but at least I, I'm eliminating one issue mm -hmm. with that, hopefully. Mm -hmm. What's your go-to move when it comes to Tom tracks? It's changed over the years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Originally, I would literally cut them individually mm -hmm. and remove any section that had no Tom hit in it to silence. Yes. I don't do that anymore. Okay, what changed that for you? Spatial value of drums. Right. It just changes the quality of when the tom actually hits. It becomes a little bit too obvious that the tom has actually just made a hit because suddenly the spatial relationship inside the, the whole kit changes. I don't do that anymore. I leave the track going. I might do like a light gating that's not 100% pulling it to silence, but it might pull the individual room sound that you're getting off of the rest of the kit from a tom mic maybe down 10 db or something just so it's there but it's not gone so you wouldn't gate it out completely you would just sort of like not unless it was it an like absolute sloppy mess right if it was an absolute sloppy mess i might consider it i will generally take out all the information basically what i'm trying to say is i tend to cut out mm -hmm. tom hits yeah but this is a little bit dependent on the style of the track that you're doing i find that works best if you have more of a dense track and if i'm doing more of a rock track it tends to be a little bit more of a hyped sound anyway mm -hmm. so i find that that works best for me and I can treat them and I don't mind them actually popping out a little bit because all of that kind of stuff is going to be present in the overheads as well. You so hope. that's the way, yeah. Well, it's actually, I would prefer if I didn't have any of that in the overheads. <laughs> I would love that because- You uh, hear that, Superior Drummer? No, in Superior, you can- No, I know, I'm aware. Yeah, when you're miking an actual kit, I, I like the idea of having things separate because it just solves so many issues with bleed and stuff. It makes it potentially a nightmare for the drummer to have to perform two takes, that kind of thing. But anyway, that, that's a drum recording, and we talked about that with Chris Alice and stuff mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah, so I like to do that, but that's a judgment call. If you have some track that uh, is going to breathe a little bit more, I would probably leave them in. This is part of the process for me when I'm, I'm cleaning up drum takes. I might also do some slight corrective EQ at this point. Mm -hmm. If, for example, my overheads have a little bit too much low end in them, I might roll off a little bit. But I, you have to be careful here, I've found, because if I start getting too aggressive with you know, a low cut, they just start sounding unnatural. But yes. if there's stuff going on in the subs, little things like that, I will do before I do this as well. Right. That yeah. makes good sense, especially if you're going to export it to another mix. If you're keeping it within the same one, maybe it's advantageous to use a gate. Yeah, it can be. I think depending on how the kit is recorded, and of course this is all workflow-based, right? Mm -hmm. But it can be tricky 
to have a gate that is that accurate where it just doesn't sound like something's just popping in and out. And depending on how dynamic the drummer has been with their performance, let's say that all the mic bleed is at a certain level and there are some softer tom hits that are not reaching above where the gate would be type of yeah. thing. So there is that, but that's probably a gating episode that we might do. Yeah, sure. Last thing when it comes to editing drums here, because I think this is a big one and I want to make sure we address it a little bit. When you talked about comping, if you are comping drum takes and you say, oh yeah, take two was awesome, except that kick was a little bit late going into the downbeat of verse two, whatever. Mm -hmm. Don't just comp the kick from another take. You have to do all the shells and all the room mics and everything, because if not, that kick is still going to be present in the other mics. Yep. So that's something that can be very frustrating where somebody go, well, why don't you just take a kick from the other take? It doesn't quite work that way because the kick is already in the other shells, that kind of thing. That's Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I'm trying to get across get it. that. Yeah. It, certain DAWs will deal with it differently. Like Logic has the ability to use phase-locked phase audio. And yeah. that makes it a lot easier, especially when you have everything grouped into an actual folder, the actual instrument. So with drums, you have like your eight or 12 or 16 tracks of drums all in a single folder. And then you have that folder being a comp, that makes it easy. So. Yeah. And also other last thing here before we move on to the, the last point here, when you're doing that, you also have to pay attention to symbols and things. Mm-hmm. Because that crash and something, and all of a sudden that crash is cut off. We have to pay special attention when we're comping drums. But again, that's a process that needs to be done before I start thinking about mixing. Oh, yeah. What's our last setup here? Last setup is virtual instruments. Mm -hmm. This is of special importance. Even if you don't do any of the other stuff, do this one. (laughs) (laughs) Because how many times has it happened to you? It's happened to me a couple of times, and I know it's happened to you as well. You decide to go back and remix a song from 10 years past. Yeah. Now that virtual instrument that you had in that track is no longer available. Or has been modified so that it's not the same. Yeah. Or whatever upgrade it's been, right? It might not be there. If you don't have that track printed, guess what? You're SOL. Or you're in need of keeping an old computer around just to open shit like this up. Right. And, and that either gets expensive. Case, <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's just a pain, right? Even if you keep the MIDI file, which I would actually encourage when you go into mixing, should you have to go back and tweak something. You might have to change a register where something is played. You might have to change velocities of whatever the performance is. So that's a good thing to keep a backup, just as a DI when we're talking about bass or, or guitar, mm-hmm. yeah. right? But, but you're talking about virtual instruments, so We're talking about... I will. So I would definitely print them before I get to mixing. Yep. Because then you have it and you know if you need to open it up later, you have what you intended it to be as you started a mix. Now, one question when we're dealing with that, though, is let's say that you have a straight-up synth part that has delay on it or reverb or anything kind of like time-based effect in the patch. Would you print it with that or would you leave those out? It depends on the feel. Yeah. Yep. More often than not, I might actually remove it so that I can do it from the mix standpoint, make it cleaner. However, 
if the feel goes completely awry by doing it precisely in a mix, then you will want to keep the original intent of the performance. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's it's one of those things that we want to be aware of. If it's an integral part of the patch, mm -hmm. then you keep it in. But if it's something where it just becomes a swirly mess, possibly in a mix, right? you might want to remove those just so that you have that control when it comes to mixing because it would be very unfortunate. You have something there and you go, oh, that's the delay is just way too loud. And yeah, it becomes difficult with your volumic value. There you go. The volumic value mm -hmm. of your sonic <laughs> juiciness, damn it. Ooh, he, he gets them both <laughs> in here. I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, so those are things just to keep or be aware of when you're doing virtual instruments. And I don't think we need to go into if you're dealing with orchestral samples and stuff because that, that's a different well, it thing as well. files virtual instruments as well. The other yeah. thing, too, in terms of printing your MIDI tracks out with the sounds that you've actually used is it just helps with your archival purposes, as Absolutely. it does with amp sims and bass sims and any other effects that are integral to what you're putting into the mix. Right, absolutely. Print so one last point before we put a bow on this. Poke my eye out, man. When you're doing this, when you are printing the guitar tracks, when you're printing your virtual instrument tracks, when you're done comping your vocals, all this kind of stuff, bounce everything from the beginning of the track. So you're going from- Wherever your zero start is. Yeah, go that until the end. Well, first of all, if you're sending it to somebody else, they're going to have a nightmare of a time aligning things if you don't. Again, if you're opening this up again for archiving or something down the line, you want to make sure that there's no issues with that. I have been given tracks before where I got somebody that had been using a different DAW during tracking. Mm -hmm. And I asked for, it was one of those communication things they said, do you want the stems? I said, no, I want the multi-tracks. Right. Okay, you want me to stem it out? No, I want the multi-tracks. And they ended up sending me the session file with no multi-tracks, nothing bounced out. I just had the little regions and stuff, and I just ended up having to re-record a whole bunch of it. because. Crap. Yeah, that was unfortunate. So that's just good habit to do, even if you're mixing it yourself. You'll be happier, probably mix faster, because you're not fixing as many issues. So get that done before you start mixing. And now that we're happy with the way we're actually exporting and dealing with our mixes, let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got today? Woohoo! I discovered an artist and sound designer that goes by the name Venus Theory. Mm, very ethereal. Yes. And this guy's a guy called Cameron. He has... Well, it's got music out, great sort of ambient type of electronic stuff that I love. And he also has a really, really good YouTube channel mm. where he talks about different forms of synthesis and sound design kind of thing. And it was one of those guys that, yeah, it was just really inspiring to see them work because that's a little bit outside of what I do on the daily, so to speak. So do yourself a favor. If you're into that kind of stuff, go check him out. Venus Theory. I like it. What do you got? I'm going with the Caveman Audio AP1 Compact Acoustic Preamp. That's now, a mouthful. Yes, it is. It is a giant mouthful. The idea here is that the Caveman comes from a guy out of Denmark, and he has 
built custom gear for some of the biggest names in our music history past in terms of modern recorded music. Steen Skredstrup. I'm probably butchering that name, but I believe that's his name. So, but well, he's decided to shrink this shit. So it's much like his original thing, but now it's much smaller and much more compact and weighs a lot less, like half as much less. So it's the AP1 acoustic preamp that I'm going with for this week. Cool. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase, Mix Prep. And you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, people. I'll talk to you later, Jody. Jody.